When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. When the Sabaeans first crossed the Red Sea to visit the Ethiopian kingdom of Damat, they found a familiar yet distinctive culture. Communication was helped by the fact that both kingdoms spoke South Semitic languages, though likely from different branches. Both practiced a mix of agriculture and cattle herding, and both knew the value of frankincense and myrrh. To ensure ongoing access, the Sabaeans likely established a trading colony, military base, or some similar long-term footprint. But the Damati took something valuable in exchange, the South Arabian alphabetic script. The Sabaean alphabet, like Hebrew and Arabic, only contained consonants, and the script was read from right to left. The Damati modified it to fit their use, adding vowels and creating a script that was read from left to right. Though Damati power eventually faded, their language and script were widely adopted, including by the local Aga peoples, who'd previously spoken Cushitic. The script eventually evolved into what's called Old Ethiopic, or the Gies alphabetic script. Though the Gies language, as opposed to the script, likely had local origins. The oldest surviving example of the Gies script is an inscription on the Hawulti Monument, a 4th century AD obelisk recovered in modern Eritrea. But by that time, the kingdom of Aksum was already thriving. The kingdom's name derives from a combination of the Aga word for water and the Gies word for official, hinting at the authority of those who controlled the water in local cisterns. As far back as the 1st century AD, Aksum was mentioned in the Periplus of the Erythrian Sea as a major hub for the ivory trade. 
The author describes the kingdom's main Red Sea port, Adulis, as lying 3,000 stadia south of the Egyptian port of Ptolemaeus Theron, or Ptolemaeus of the Hunts. He also describes the journey from the port to the highland capital of Axum as taking eight days. It was to Axum that all the ivory is brought from the country beyond the Nile. Practically the whole number of elephants and rhinoceros that are killed live in places inland, although at rare intervals they are hunted on the seacoast, even near Adulis. He records the Aksumites using iron for the tips of their spears and importing axes, swords, and military cloaks. From coastal India, they also imported Indian iron and steel and Indian cotton cloth, all in exchange for the local commodities of ivory, tortoiseshell, and rhinoceros horn. Aksum also dealt in incense, exotic animals, and slaves and local deposits of gold, iron, and salt enhanced its mercantile role. By the first century AD, Aksumite ships were taking advantage of monsoon winds to cross the Arabian Sea directly to southern India, at the same time that their Roman contemporaries were doing the same from Egypt. They'd also begun expanding northward into the territories of Kush, slowly subsuming the kingdom's trade with Rome and other regions. In addition to large stone palaces, the capital of Axum was also home to the kingdom's most striking monuments, stelae and obelisks, influenced by those of Egypt and Kush, but with a uniquely Axumite style. The obelisks were designed to evoke multi-storied palaces with false doors and windows, and were often placed next to carved stone thrones. The largest such obelisk ever recovered had once stood a hundred feet tall. Under King Endubis in the 3rd century AD, Axum started minting its own gold and silver coins which featured Greek inscriptions, Sabaean symbols, and a Roman standard weight. It's a testament to the kingdom's growing prominence that the mid-3rd century prophet Manny, founder of Manichaeism, regarded Axum as one of the world's great powers, along with China, Persia, and Rome. Much like the Himyarites of southern Arabia, the Aksumites of the mid-3rd century AD were polytheistic. And one fun thing I discovered while researching this episode is that, being so close to Mesopotamia, Arabia often shared the same gods. But by the time they made it down to the south, their sexes were often reversed. So the Mesopotamian sun god Shamash became the South Arabian goddess Shams. In a similar fashion, Ishtar, the Mesopotamian goddess of sex and war, became the South Arabian storm god, Athtar. Athtar then crossed the Red Sea to become the Aksumite supreme deity, Astar, he who was bold in battle. The Aksumite trinity was rounded out by Astar's two children, Maher, the god of war, and Beher, the god of the sea. But all this was destined to change over the following century after two young Tyrian slaves arrived at the court of the Aksumite king.
The boys were named Frumentius and Adesius, and they eventually became so valued and trusted that they were made responsible for instructing the king's son, the Aksumite crown prince, Izana. After King Wasanus died, Queen Sophia even prevailed on the boys to help Izana administer the kingdom while he was in his minority. The boys agreed and remained in Axum for several more years. As it happened, both Frumentius and Adesius were fervent Christians, and they tried to make the Axumite court and the Axumite kingdom a bit more open to Christianity. They weren't exactly working from scratch. Christian missionaries and traders had been visiting the kingdom since the time it was founded. But the brothers' influence, along with the recent conversion of the Roman Empire, gave Christianity broader appeal. When Azana was old enough to rule, the brothers took their thanks and sailed for home. While Adesius returned to Tyre, Frumentius went to Alexandria and requested that the patriarch Athanasius send a Christian mission to Ethiopia. Athanasius agreed and, impressed by Frumentius, made him a bishop on the spot and sent him right back to Axum. Once he arrived, Bishop Frumentius did a little thing called Found the Ethiopian Christian Church. And while he was at it, Frumentius also baptized his old student and friend, the Axumite king Azana, which is how the kingdom of Axum converted to Christianity. In fact, coins minted under King Azana, many of which were recovered in India, were the first coins minted anywhere in the world to show the Christian cross. It was during Azana's reign that the kingdom of Kush finally succumbed to the brutal trifecta of decreased trade, international pressure, and internal rebellions. It may have been Azana himself who dealt the final blow, capturing and destroying their capital of Meroe, after which the Kushites ceased to be a significant regional power. There's also a suggestion, with little detail, that Azana exerted some type of authority over the lands of southwest Arabia. Among his titles were King of Saba and Salhen, Himyar and Du Radon, titles usually associated with Himyarite kings. It may have been a temporary situation, possibly the compulsion of tribute from a weak Himyarite ruler. We do know that a few decades after Azana's reign, the Himyarites were ruled by a powerful king named Abu Karib Assad, the Perfect. And just how did he become perfect? Well, let's find out. Over the past few decades, Abu Karib had expanded Himyarite control east along the Hadramaut coast and northeast into central Arabia. In tandem with growing Aksumite power, another concern for the Himyarite king was increasing Byzantine encroachment, especially along the west coast of the Arabian Peninsula. So Abu Karib decided to take some action. He took an army north, passing through the city of Yathrib along the way, and appointing his son as the town's governor. A few days after his army left, the townspeople overthrew and killed the prince. 
upon which Abu Karib rushed back and besieged Yathrib, intending to kill all its inhabitants and burn the city to the ground. Local resistance was composed of both Arabs and Jews. Since Jews had been migrating to the Yathrib region as early as the second century, during the siege, Abu Karib fell ill, and two Jewish scholars named Cobb and Assad came to his camp and attempted to cure him. They were apparently successful, convinced the king to lift the siege, and also inspired a major religious conversion. Around 390 A.D. King Abu Karib Assad the Perfect adopted the Jewish faith. During the same campaign, Abu Karib played a notable role in the progress of another religion. Once every lunar year, local Bedouin tribes would make a pilgrimage to the nearby city of Mecca. Once they arrived, they'd set aside their tribal feuds, engage in trade, and worship the gods of the Kaaba principally the Arabian god Hubai, who may have had Nabataean origins. The cubic Kaaba structure supposedly contained a black stone that had fallen from the sky, a symbolic connection between heaven and earth. While visiting Mecca, Abu Karib is credited with being the first ruler to ceremonially drape the Kaaba with an embroidered cloth called the Kizwa. In later Islamic times, after the Hajj pilgrimage, the Kizwa cloth would be cut into pieces and given to pilgrims to use as shelter from the heat. Abu Karib also tasked members of the local Jurham tribe with keeping the Kaaba well protected and in a state of ritual purity. Unlike in Aksum, the conversion of King Abu Karib to Judaism didn't automatically convert the whole kingdom. According to Al-Tabari, after returning to the Himyarite capital of Zafar, Abu Karib summoned its people to enter into the same religion as he had done, saying, it is a better religion than yours. But they refused until they were able to test it by means of an ordeal by fire. And lucky for us, Altabari gives us all the crazy details. There was in Yemen a fire, by means of which they would settle matters in dispute amongst themselves. The fire would devour the wrongdoer, but leave the one who had suffered injury unscathed. To take a minor digression, ordeals by fire were common and varied across the ancient world. In many places, it meant walking over heated metal plates, holding a hot iron, passing through a raging fire, or um, having molten metal poured on one's chest. The ancient Persians apparently had 30 different types of ordeal by fire which meant someone had a lot of free time and a pretty gruesome hobby. But the fire cave or fire pit the Himyarites used is an interesting variation. At the appointed time, the religious competitors gathered for the god-off. On the one side, you had a group of Himyarites holding the idols of various South Arabian gods, 
And on the other side, you had the two Jewish scholars, Cobb and Assad, with their sacred codices around their necks. Altabari records that they all went together and halted in front of the fire by the place where it blazed forth. The fire leapt out toward them, and when it neared them, they withdrew from it in great fear. But those people present urged them onward and instructed them to stand firm. The Himurite men stood their ground until the fire covered them and consumed the idols and the sacred objects they had brought along together with the men of Himyar who were bearing them. Next in went the two Jewish scholars, with their sacred codices around their necks, with their foreheads dripping with sweat, but the fire did not harm them at all. Which is how, at the end of the day, a substantial portion of the Himyarite kingdom converted to monotheistic Judaism. And these moments are always interesting to me because, by and large, these conversions often rely on two main factors. The first is the ability of scholars or divines to heal a ruler of sickness or injury, which was the case with King Abu Karib, as well as with the 3rd century AD King Tigranes the Great of Armenia when he converted to Christianity. The second factor, to put it bluntly, is a god-off, where the servants of one god display supernatural powers outmatching those of their rivals, with Moses versus the Egyptian priests, a pretty well-known example. There were certainly other situations where religious doctrine played a role, as may have been the case in nearby Axum. But it's interesting to chart the different paths that led to monotheism. The upshot for the Himyarites is that, over time, the temples to Almaka and the other South Arabian gods increasingly fell into disuse, and dedications began to be made in the name of Rahman, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Himyarite appellation for the God of the Jews. Under Abu Karib's successors, Dushanatir and Du Nuas, the Jewish Himyarites kept the faith. But they also started earning a reputation for the persecution of Christians. They even killed one of Abu Karib's sons, Azkir, for erecting a Christian church. The Himyarites claimed these acts were in response to the persecution of Jews in the Roman Empire which was definitely a thing. As just one example, in the early 5th century, St. Cyril of Alexandria had expelled tens of thousands of Jews from Egypt, leveled their synagogues, and taken all their possessions. But of course, two wrongs don't make a right, and whatever the rationale, the Himyarite oppression of local Christians led to a major backlash. Things finally came to a head in the Christian city of Najran. And it's another digression, but also kind of interesting, how Najran first became Christian. According to Al-Tabari, the people of Najran used to worship a lofty date palm in their midst. Which, I know, just go with me here. One day a charismatic Christian named Fai Yoon showed up and basically said, Hey, nice tree, 
But you know, if I invoke my god, he'll knock that tree right down. And everyone was like, oh yeah? And Phimeyun was like, yeah. Phimeyun then proceeded to invoke God's curse on the date palm. God sent a wind that tore the tree up from its roots and cast it down. At that, the people of Najran followed Phimeyun and adopted his religion. So that's another one strictly in the God-off category. In subsequent years, Najran became a center of Christian worship, which had made it a target for the current Himyarite king, Dunuwas, described by Altabari as a fervent partisan of the Jewish faith. In 525 AD, after hearing a story about two local Jews being killed in Najran, Dunuwas marched on the city quickly captured it, and put to death some 20,000 locals who refused to convert to Judaism. A survivor managed to cross the Red Sea and make it to the court of Caleb, the current Christian king of Aksum. According to Al-Tabari, the survivor informed the king of what the Himyarites had committed and gave him a copy of the Gospels partly burned by the fire. Caleb was suitably incensed and willing to commit his forces, but apparently had a shortage of transport ships. So he wrote to the current Byzantine emperor Justin I, father of the much more famous Justinian, and requested approval for the coming invasion along with some ships to ferry his troops. Both requests were evidently granted. Rather than go himself, Caleb dispatched an Aksumite commander named Aretas to lead the invasion. Coming ashore in southern Arabia, Aretas clashed with Dunuas, and the latter was quickly defeated. Altabari records the ruler's pretty evocative death. When Dunuas saw what had befallen him and his supporters, he headed his horse toward the sea. He whipped it onward, bearing him through the shallows until it carried him into deep water. He then urged it onward into the open sea, and that was the last ever seen of him. In victory, the Aksumite general Aretas overran the land with his forces, imposing firm control over the land and reducing it to submission. He then appointed a local Christian named Sumuafa Ashawa as viceroy over the Hemurites, which basically ended the persecutions, the Jewish dynasty, and Hemurite self-rule. Caleb's control didn't last for long because later that year, 525 AD, an Aksumite general named Abraha overthrew Sumuafa Ashawa took control of Himyarite territory, and proclaimed himself its independent king. Over the next several years, King Caleb of Aksum made several attempts to regain his foothold in southern Arabia, all of which were unsuccessful. Caleb's successor ended up negotiating a peace with Abraha, who retained independence while acknowledging nominal Aksumite authority and paying its rulers tribute. King Abraha's most famous accomplishment was building an enormous church in the Yemeni capital of Sana'a, 
which he strove to make a pilgrimage site for local Arab tribes. Upon his death in 553, Abraha's brother Masruk succeeded him to the throne. But a Himyarite noble named Saif ibn D. Yazan, who was extremely resentful of Aksumite domination, decided to enlist a foreign power to back him in a revolt. He got zero traction with the Roman Emperor Justinian, which makes sense since Masruk was ruling as a Christian king. So, around 570 AD, Saif ibn D. Yazan traveled to Tesiphon and the court of Khosro I. The Shahanshah was ruling a reinvigorated Persian Empire, powerful enough to compel tribute from the Byzantines while, at the same time, continuing to raid and loot Syria whenever he felt the urge. Back in 540 AD, Khosrow even managed to plunder Antioch, take a dip in the Mediterranean at Seleucia Pieria, and officiate over chariot races in Apamea. I'm just saying, he seemed like a pretty fun guy. Since then, Persia had been involved with protracted wars in both the Caucasus and Central Asia, both of which had ended fairly successfully. Now, the Persians were still mainly Zoroastrians, so they gave two figs about the religious angle, apart from the fact that both the Byzantines and Aksumites were Christians. So, sure, Khosrow was up for taking a stab at conquering southern Arabia. In support of the revolt of Saif ibn D. Yazan, Khosrow dispatched his general Vares with a body of troops aboard eight ships which made landfall along the coastal strip of Hadramaut. King Masruk brought an army of Christian Aksumite forces south to confront him. In the ensuing battle, Vares legendarily killed Masruk with a single perfectly aimed arrow shot, which caused the Aksumite army to flee, after which they were all run down and slaughtered by the Persians. Vares then took the capital of Sana'a and installed the instigator, Saif ibn D. Yazan, as the Persian vassal king of Yemen. As mentioned earlier, Saif ibn D. Yazan was a local Himyarite who intensely resented Aksumite influence. So once he took over, he made it his priority to kill or expel as many Aksumites as possible except for a few that he kept as spear-bearing slaves. And we can all see this coming, right? Anyway, one day this group of spear-bearers turned their spears in the king's direction, and Saif ibn D. Yazan met a bloody end at their hands. It's not clear whether the Aksumites were able to re-establish control or whether central authority collapsed. But either way, it didn't last for long. In 578, Khosrow I sent Vares back to Yemen at the head of a Persian army. This time, his orders were to complete the task that Saif ibn D. Yazan had started, and kill or expel all the Aksumites. Once Vares reported that the work was done, Khosrow appointed him to govern the territory. And while a local king remained in place, mainly as a figurehead, from this point onward, Yemen was basically a Persian satrapy. When Vares died a few years later, Khosrow appointed Vares' son, Marsban, 
to assume his father's role. After Marsbon died in the late 6th century, Khosrow's grandson, Khosrow II, dispatched a new Persian satrap of Yemen named Badan. And it was in the early 7th century, during Badan's governorship, that reports began circulating of a prophet named Muhammad who was preaching a new faith in the city of Yathrib. Badan dutifully passed the reports along to Khosrow II, who had apparently already received a letter from the prophet inviting him to convert to Islam. Khosrow II had torn up the letter and ordered Badan to dispatch men to Yathrib and bring Muhammad to Tesaphon. But the Prophet Muhammad refused to comply and told the soldiers that Khosrow II had already been overthrown and murdered by his son, Kavad II. When the news was soon revealed to be true, Badan converted to Islam, along with many other Persians and Arabs living in Yemen. At this point, the story of the Sabaeans, Himyarites, and Aksumites yields to the larger story of the spread of Islam, which is a bit too complex to get into here. But I will mention one final regional pirouette. The Persian satrap of Yemen, Badan, was succeeded by his son, Shar, though it's not quite clear what form his rulership took. Badan was supposedly the last Persian satrap dispatched to Yemen, so it's possible that Shar had reinstituted a local dynasty. In 632 AD, the Prophet Muhammad fell ill after making a pilgrimage to Mecca. Hearing the news, a Yemeni Muslim named Aswad Ansi split from Islam and declared himself to be a new prophet covering his face with a veil to shroud himself in mystery. In imitation of Muhammad, Aswad Ansi claimed to receive divine revelations, which he then passed along to his followers. Aswad Ansi's tribe, the Al-Ansi, hailed from Hadramaut, and he leveraged both his religious following and tribal connections to stage a major revolt. He quickly captured the important cities of Najran and Sana'a, killed the ruler, Shar, married Shar's widow, and declared himself the ruler of Yemen. He also changed his title from Prophet of God to Rahman, the Most Merciful, the name once used by the Himyarite kings to invoke the Jewish god. Aswad Ansi's rule was short-lived terminated by a Persian companion of the Prophet Muhammad named Firuz al-Daylami. Interestingly, Firuz was a descendant of the Persian soldiers who'd been sent by Khosrow I a century earlier. It was also Firuz al-Daylami who incorporated Yemen into the first Islamic caliphate. The Christian tribes of Najran were ejected. But the Jewish population was allowed to remain as long as they paid the religious tax called the jizya. The legacy of the Sabaeans, Himyarites, and South Arabians endured in one particular aspect. Both Jews and Muslims reckoned time by the waxing and waning of the moon, and those of Arabia insisted on strict tradition. In each religion, officials were required to witness the new moon with their very own eyes before the lunar cycle could begin. 
the moon of Almaka, Om, Wad, Sin, and the ages yet to come. <laughs>